0: Let's pray, Lord. Thanks for your word and uh, thanks for this Advent season. And um, you know, I just pray that as we dive into the sermon here, Lord, that um, uh, you know you would open our hearts, open our minds, and teach us your gospel. Amen. Sorry, let me put this on. Do 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 preaching mode. What's that? what are those things called? I'm getting notifications because Melissa's at home, and the ring camera. Ring ring ring. All right, so we're in the Advent season, we're talking about, this morning we're going to talk about hope, but to start talking about hope, I want to talk about death. Okay, let's get into it. For basically all of human history, every, every person has thought about and struggled with the idea of their own death. People are terrified of dying. And if they're not terrified of dying, if they tell you they're not, they're just not yet. <laughs> Is they're not old enough. The older you get, I think, the more scared you get to die. And so what, what's happened in human history is every belief system in the history of the world <clears throat> has attempted to give people some sort of a framework to deal with the fact that they are going to die someday. And so some li- religions, most religions, have some form of an afterlife. Uh, Islam has, like, the 14 stages of the afterlife that will eventually lead you to paradise then when you get to paradise there's like seven levels of paradise that you can end up at it's very complicated um ancient judaism there's some debate about this probably believed in some sort of a resurrection of the dead in mormonism you get your own planet and you become a god so that sounds like a lot of fun right uh the ancient egyptians had an interesting one which is actually similar to what they believe in islam is that at death your heart would be weighed against a feather. So they take your heart out in front of you. I don't know how that works. And they put it on a scale and they weigh it against a feather. And if your heart is heavy with misdeeds, you know, heavier than the feather, then you go to the bad part of the afterlife. Um, What is it? They feed you to a demon or something like that. And then if not, you go to like a better part. You know, the Vikings had Valhalla, which was like a never ending battle. There's actually the Vikings. I was looking this up. I forget. I didn't write the other one down. There's actually two places you can go. It's either Valhalla or the other one, but they're both good. You know, if you're, it's like go to that battle or that battle. I think um, Buddhism has the idea of um, reincarnation, and hopefully, eventually, um, the idea of your soul joining the all soul. They call it. It's like um, uh, the illustration they use. It's like you're a water, a drop of water entering the ocean. You know, and you just sort of disappear um, into the ocean. Hinduism is super complicated. Uh, turns out, pinning down what Hinduism believes is like nailing Jello to the wall. You know, it's like it's pretty hard to do. <laughs> um, there's a whole bunch of branches of Hinduism, but um, a lot of their, a lot of Hinduism believes in reincarnation. Some of it believes in an afterlife. But we so we see this all over these different religious frameworks that have given people hope after death. We also see this with um, in non-religious areas, right? Like Socrates. Um, you know, the story of Socrates. So he got, he was executed in Athens for um, being a troublemaker, basically. And um, uh, he talked about death and he says, there's only two options at death. One is it's a dreamless sleep. And then the second option is death is just a passageway to another world that's just like this one. So either way, death is nothing to fear. This is what Socrates believed. But do you see the giant hole in that problem? I mean, in his solution, there. Uh, what grounding does he have to say there's only two options for death? How do you know there's not a third option or a fourth or fifth? Op- you know, it, that seems very much like some guy just made this up. You know, um, there's another Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Um, he agreed with Socrates about the dreamless sleep, um, but what he said is death is not evil. Um, things can only be evil if they feel bad. And since when you're dead, it feels like nothing because you just disappear. Death is not bad. That's what um, Epicurus said. A more recent philosopher, Thomas Nagel, he says death is only a bummer because you're going to miss out on uh, cool stuff. That's the only bummer part of death. But you also don't sit around all day going, man, I wasn't around for the Battle of Waterloo. That's a real bummer. And so just like you don't miss the things and you're not bummed out about the things that happened before you were born, you shouldn't be bummed out that you're going to miss out on the things afterwards. And so death is kind of no big deal, according to Thomas Nagel. Now, I think the Christian worldview, what we believe in the gospel, gives us unique tools and grounding for hope, right? The gospel tells a better story than all of those other stories. And we, the people of Jesus, are called to live into that hope, called to live uh, live out this story in real tangible way. So, what is hope, though? What, you know, this is the Advent week. Is it a candle? Thing? Yeah. The the Advent week for hope. What do we mean by hope? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine, uh, this is a, I stole this from, uh, I don't know, a book. Uh, imagine there's two women, and they both get hired for a job. And this job is very tedious. It's sitting at a desk all day, putting together... You know, like, uh, I don't know, like the job from Roseanne. Do you ever watch Roseanne in the 80s? Anyway, it's the greatest show of all time. Anyway, it's pretty funny. I grew up on this show. So her job in the first couple of seasons was she worked at a plastic fork factory. And the forks would come off the line on, like, these big sheets, and she had to break them off one by one and put them in a bucket and then throw, take the piece and throw it into the recycling and then pass it along. Eight hours a day, breaking forks off. That seems like a pretty tedious job, right? Now, imagine two women get hired for the same job. One of them sits down in the interview or, you know, sits down on the orientation day and they say, what's the pay structure? They say, at the end of the year, we're going to give you $60 million. Okay. The second woman comes in, same job, end of the year, we're going to give you $30,000. Okay. Now, they both are sitting there doing the same job, but one of them is whistling while she works. One of them is very excited about this job, and they sit down in the break room or whatever. I don't know. I never had a real job. I heard they have break rooms. Um, (laughs) And she sits down in the break room. And she says to the other lady, boy, this job sucks. (laughs) What are you talking about? This is the best job I've ever had. I love this job. What's the difference? Right? What's going on? One has a very different expectation of the future. Neither of them have been paid yet. They're doing the same work. Except one of them thinks that at the end of this, I'm getting, what did I say? $60 million, right? That's a lot of money for one year just to break some forks off of the thing. That's hope, right? That's how we live our lives with hope. Now, I want to clarify something because in English, the word hope kind of means something different than the biblical idea of hope, right? So in, is there a dog over there? <laughs> anyway, the the. the The English word for hope means wishful thinking. Okay? So, uh, the biblical idea of hope, though, is more confident. It's a confident hope. Let me give you another illustration, right? Imagine, what was that lotto a few weeks ago? Remember, it was all over the news. It was like $2 billion or something. Do You remember this? Okay. So, imagine you played that lotto for some reason, and... You buy the ticket from the corner store, and you walk out, and you go, boy, I hope I win. Okay, that's wishful thinking hope. Now, what if you checked the numbers on whatever day the lotto happens? I don't even know, Saturday or something. And you, you watch the thing, and I think, isn't there a lady who pulls the numbers out of the thing? Is that how it works? I've just seen that on TV. I don't know if that's real, but let's pretend that's real. And she pulls the lottery numbers out, and she's like, seven. And you're like, hey, that says Seven. She's like, 13, 13, you know, she goes, I don't know how many lotto numbers there are, six. She, okay, let's pretend I already did six. And you get to the last one and the Powerball is 45. And you're like, I have all the numbers. I just won $2 billion minus all the taxes and everything. So it's like $11. I just won $11. No, you just won a ton of money. So you look at it again. You look at the numbers you look at the lady on the thing holding up the, you know, the the numbers on the bottom of the screen. You're like, that can't be. I can't have just won this, right? So then you go online, you type in what were the lottery numbers, you know, and Google brings it up. You're like, whoa, it's the same. I know, let's check Bing. Is that a thing, right? See people Bing it, right? So you Bing it and uh, you check the numbers and you have the same. You have the same numbers on all of them. And so what you do is you sit in your couch, and you go, oh my gosh, I have two billion dollars coming. You don't have the money yet, you don't have $2 billion, but you have a ticket that's giving you a confident hope. If you had a debt collector calling you every day while this was going on, right, for like $1,000 or something, and it stressed you out, would you be stressed the next time the debt collector called? No, why? You've got a ticket that's for $2 billion. It's a confident hope. You know, I don't know how it works. What do you call somebody when you win the lottery or something? Do you go down to the, is there an office? I don't know how it goes. Whatever it is, you go down to the office or something and you cash your, you know that's going to happen. And so you have this whole new perspective on life. The Christian worldview comes with that same kind of hope. It's not wishful thinking, boy, I hope I win, right? It's the confident I'm holding the ticket kind of hope. And so we have to be really clear about that idea when we're talking about hope as we go through. I don't want to confuse those two words. So today what we're going to do is we're going to read some from the book of 1 Peter. And real quick, without digging into the whole what 1 Peter is, 1 Peter is a book written to a group of Christians who are suffering a very heavy persecution. And not the like, oh, the government's telling me what I can't say kind of persecution, which is bad enough, but like the, oh, the government is rounding up all my friends and feeding them to wild animals kind of persecution, right? This was like some deep, heavy stuff that these people were going through. And um, Peter writes them this book, and it's called the Epistle of Hope, right? He writes it to these people to sort of explain what's going on. So we're going to look today at three ideas about Christian hope. So I'm actually doing a three-point sermon for the first time ever. You ready for this? Okay, the first, I'm going to give them to you up front, too, because I heard that's what you're supposed to do. Um, The first idea is our hope is alive. The second idea is our hope is grounded. And the third idea is our hope is visible. So let's check this out. Our hope is alive. Modern, so in the intro, when I was talking about the beginning, when I was talking about... um, all the different worldviews and how they deal with death and what kind of hope they give. Uh, The one that I skipped was the modern one, secular materialism, right? Meaning we're not, secular meaning we don't believe in a deity, we don't believe in the afterlife or anything like that, in the supernatural. And materialism meaning we believe that, uh, they believe that uh, this world and the material world is all there is and everything has to be proven within that framework. And so secular materialism has a massive problem. What do we do with death, right? What do they do with the idea of death? And a lot of secular modernism has picked up that Greek stuff, those two Greek guys, that basically death is just disappearing, so it's no big deal, right? You're just sort of annihilated um, and really run with it. And you know where is the best example of this in all of modern culture? is Melissa just made me go see The Lion King. Boy, that was, you guys, it was really long. And they just kept singing. I was like, oh my gosh. And the kid next to me was like talking to his mom. Like, not kid, like 10 year old. was like a full on conversation. And I was like, hey, butthead, shut up. These tickets were expensive, you know. Not that I want to watch it anyway, actually, but. Okay, so we were watching The Lion King and there was these actors and they were all acting and everything, boy, it was a whole thing. And uh, in the middle of it there, they start getting into, there's a scene where um, mm, the little lion and the big one, what's the names? Simba and Mufasa's, yeah, there you go. Okay, I'm not a big Disney guy, if you can't tell. Uh, They're chatting, right? And Okay, I could have looked it up, but uh, then I would have had to watch The Lion King, and I wasn't about to do that for a sermon, you know. Uh, but they had some sort of a conversation about, uh, you know, what happens when you're dead. And um, the the old one there, James Earl Jones, he goes, uh, uh, well, you die, then you become part of the ground, and then the ground grows the grass, and then the gazelles eat the grass, and then the lions eat the gazelles, and it's all just part of the circle of life, right? Isn't that it? Is that close? Okay, it's the circle of life. And then they sang a whole song about it. You, do, you already just said it, man. You don't have to sing a song about it. Come on, you're killing me. Anyway, but that idea perfectly encapsulates the way secular materialism thinks about death, right? What happens? You go to the ground, you become... So death, have you heard this before? Death is just a part of life, right? Have you heard that before? I've heard that like 100,000 times in talking to people. Well, the problem with that is death sucks, and it's not part of life, and every part of us on the inside, when somebody dies, goes, it's not supposed to be like this, and there's a huge problem in the philosophical world with how, how do they deal with death with this worldview? They have a lot of problems. I want to read to you this kind of long quote. It's in the um, it's in the, uh, the, the new bulletin thingy there, whatever we're calling that. This is from Tim Keller, uh, a book called Making Sense of God. He said, the philosopher Peter Kreft recounts the story of a seven-year-old boy whose cousin died at the age of three. He asked his mother, where's my cousin now? She did not believe in God or the afterlife, so she could not with integrity talk to him about heaven. Instead, she followed the modern secular narrative. Your cousin has gone back to the earth, she said, from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life, and so when you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that your cousin's life That it is your cousin's life that is fertilizing those flowers. That's what she said to her little boy. Give her credit, right? At least she tried. You know? How did the little boy respond? He screamed, I don't want him to be fertilizer. (laughs) And he ran away. Kreft argues that the mother had let the modern narrative suppress the natural human intuition that death is not natural at all. Kreft elsewhere argues that to tell people that we must accept death as just another stage of growth or a part of life is like telling a quadriplegic that paralysis is another stage of exercise. Right? Isn't that true? When somebody dies, nobody goes, oh, you know, that's just, that's normal. This is how it's supposed to be. That was really sweet. Nobody says that. Right? When people die, we're we're like, it's gut-wrenching, isn't it? It sucks. And every part of us knows that it's not really supposed to be like this. And so here's the problem. All of humanity for all time has looked at death and said, it's not supposed to be this way, right? This is not natural. This is not part of life. So let's try to think about this and come up with a framework. And I think a lot of folks have come up with some terrible frameworks, right? Or, you know, just kind of made some stuff up. But at least they're trying to actually deal with it. Modern secular materialism, these folks come along and basically said, we don't need an explanation. They're the first people in history to come along and say, we don't need an explanation because death is no big deal. It's just a part of life. And another reason, I think, so not just because we don't like watching people die, but there's another problem in this sort of philosophy. It's called the the problem of love. Here's how this goes. What makes life meaningful? Is it money? Almost nobody would say it's money. People live like that, but nobody would say it out loud. Nobody thinks the more money I have, the more meaningful my life is. Nobody thinks Elon Musk has the most meaningful life in the world, right? What makes life meaningful is love. Being loved by others, being a loving person to others, being in relationships that are loving, and ultimately... Right? So this is what gives life meaning. This is what gives your life weight and purpose. And ultimately, this is what um, death does in the secular, materialist worldview. It says that those relationships are gone and are meaningless now. Because once you're dead, there's no way to love. You've just completely disappeared. And so you spend your entire life building up this thing, building up these love relationships with family, spouse, friends, friends, Right? Being a loving person, and then just out of nowhere, boom, all of that is just gone. And that doesn't sit right with people. That's really heavy to think about. My family that I love, my my spouse, my kids, all of this love that I've built up over these years just completely disappears. And so for most of human history, like I've said, we've found hope. Humanity has tried to find hope in supernatural places. But in the last hundred years, we have taken that hope in the supernaturals. We look at the problem of love and the problem of death. And we've said, how do we live with these problems, right? This is tough. And we've historically said, we'll find hope in the afterlife in something else, something greater than me, the supernatural. And what we've done with the modern secular materialist worldview is we've said, we're gonna take the hope that we used to put up here in the supernatural and we're gonna bring it down here and put it in the natural, into the material, into the material world, into stuff that we can see and feel and stuff that humans create. And the thing is, it's not working. It's not good enough, right? Suicide weights, rates are climbing, right? Are, are skyrocketing, not just climbing. Like, if you look at the chart of suicide rates, it's very disturbing. Depression is at epidemic levels, right? Especially in young people who tend to be less religious, right? Depression rates are crazy high. And I think also this idea of moving our hope from the supernatural to the natural is what's part of what's driving our political climate here in America. Because what we're doing is we're putting hope in political parties and political figures and you know we're placing way too much hope and both sides are guilty of this, right? And so we've taken this eternal story of hope and we've moved it into the material so christians have historically always said our hope is in something eternal and what that means is we're never going to create utopia here on earth christians have never had that as a goal and so we can work for justice and for a better world because this doesn't have to be ultimate for me and so we don't put all of our weight in a political system or in whatever you know we don't put our all of our hope here and I think the problem is, now, I think a lot of evangelicals are guilty of this, especially. We've placed that eternal hope in things here into It's why losing politically now is a way bigger deal than it was back in the day. Right? Back in the day, it was just like, "Oh well, I guess my team lost, but he's still the president, you know? Like you never hear that anymore. And so talking about hope and death and just where we place our hope, Peter, in the book of First Peter, he tells a better story. He gives us a better place to put our hope. Look what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to read this verse again in a minute. But right now, I just want to focus on that phrase, living hope. What does Peter say about hope? Why does he add the word living? Why doesn't he just say, Um, He has caused us to be born again to a hope, to hope through the resurrection. Why does he add the word living? Well, think about it. If there's such a thing as a living hope, he's kind of implying that there's such a thing as a dead hope. And the dead hope is that secular story. It's the hope that can't deliver. that can't live up to its own promises. But the Christian hope is alive. And I was trying to think about like, man, how do I word this exactly to describe living hope? And I came up with nothing. But you get the idea, don't you? Something. If you have one thing in front of you that's dead and one that's alive, you get the picture that he's trying to paint, right? One of these hopes brings life. It's vibrant. It works. And the other one is just laying there like a dead fish. Um, C.S. <clears throat> Lewis says this. Here's the thing. Aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. I love that quote. And what he means by that is the, the materialist worldview is aiming at earth. It's just everything is here, all our hope is here. And what he says is they miss out on that. They miss out on all the good stuff. But with the Christian worldview, when we aim at heaven, meaning when we live with eternal perspective and we live with our hope in eternity, all of a sudden, not only do we get that in eternity, but it makes this world better. It makes us better citizens of this world. Um, that That orientation of eternity stirs up the heart Right, of the life here on Earth. It's like two bodies of water. Right? Imagine you have two bodies of water. One is a flowing, vibrant stream uh, of, you know, I don't know, very clear water, like you'd see in Yosemite or something, I don't know. And the other is a stagnant pool right out here on Powell Street, after like a week after it rains. Now, which one of those two would you rather take a drink from? Right? Actually, you're not even really supposed to drink from the stream, but you get the idea, right? You know, you get the all the bacteria and everything. But you know, you get what I'm saying, right? Is you don't know, our hope is like that that flowing stream. The 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 gospel story gives the the follower of Jesus unique tools to live facing death and to live with hope facing death, but also to just live a normal, everyday life with joy and happiness here on the earth now but here's a question wouldn't that work with islam too or mormonism and you get your planet as long as you're just thinking about something in eternity or the norse religions or whatever as long as you have some kind of an afterlife why does ours have to be different what sets us apart from not just secular materialism but from them that's the second is that our hope is grounded okay so i want to read to you uh, the rest of the whole part of this passage What he says here is that our hope has five different things that ground it. I put these in the bulletin thing too if you don't want to write these down. We have five ways that our hope is grounded. The first is look at this. Our hope is grounded in divine mercy. If your hope for eternity was dependent on how well you behaved, you could never really have any hope because you'd be waffling back and forth and did I really make it? Think about facing death in Islam. Or in the Egyptian thing, they kind of do the same thing. But in Islam, what they say is that your good deeds are taken, and they're put on a scale against your bad deeds. How could you walk into that with any kind of confidence? Even if you think you're a good person, you count in your whole life, right? That, it's not a hopeful way to face eternity. There's no comfort there. The Christian gospel gives us that comfort because the Christian gospel says Your salvation literally has nothing to do with how you behave. You can be the worst person, you know, the gospel, the Christian story isn't about being well behaved. It's Christians are not those who measure up. Christians are those that know they don't measure up. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, I don't measure up. I need help. I need you. That's, That's how this works. I can't behave, right? And so the good news is this is not the system. How well... You, you know, there's no, well, I guess if we said there was a scale, and this is not a biblical picture, but the scale in Christianity would be your bad deeds, and then Jesus steps on the other side of the scale, and it always goes to the bottom, and he says, don't worry, I got this one for you, right? That's the Christian scale, and so because we know that Jesus has promised he's always going to do that, we can head into death and into eternity with confidence that we're not going to face the judgment that we deserve. And so you see how that plays into our hope. Your hope doesn't have to waffle back and forth. Your hope is grounded in something more eternal. The Christian hope says, I know where I'm headed because of Jesus. Period. Full stop. That's the end of it, right? The second idea, our hope is grounded in our experience of being born again. Look at this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You guys know the story of Nicodemus? So one day this guy, Nicodemus, Nicky, that's what they called him for short, he shows up and he was like, hey Jesus, what's cracking? And uh, Oh, by the way, I, we got a fix that just reminded me. I just thought of this right now. I think the bulletin still says, say what's cracking to everybody for the coffee time. I was going to change that to something more official. <laughs> Write that down. Anyway, uh, so Jesus and Nicodemus are talking and Jesus tells him, gives him this illustration. He's like, look, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, wait, I got to crawl back. And he's like, no, man, come on, dude, seriously? No, it's, you know, it's a metaphor, right? It's a picture. Um, But the idea of being born again, right? Having a second birth is, you know, just a phrase being born again has taken a lot of bad press recently, right? Like I've told you guys the story of the first day I went to the new coffee shop by my house. I mean, this was years ago, coffee movement. They had this cool van out front, uh, like a VW van, and I was talking to him about my uncle who had a van at the time, and I was like, yeah, my uncle's really cool. He does all this stuff, and um, he has a van like this, and the guy goes, oh, man, that's really cool. Um, my uncle is just a, a whole born-again Christian, and I was like, oh, and then the very next sentence, okay, what do you do? And I was like, mm, uh, I'm a pastor at an evangelical church, you know, born-again church there. Right, so we've gotten some kind of negative press, but the idea is actually very cool, Right? When you look at the biblical idea, it's actually great. Right? Let me explain. There's two things about this. Right, First, being born again, it happens to you. You don't do it. You didn't do anything to be born. Right, And you don't really do anything to be born again. It says he has caused us to be born again. It doesn't say that our hope is grounded in the idea that we've caused ourselves to be born again. So that's the first thing. Being born again is a work of God. The second thing, though, is, is it's an actual experience. We don't have time for a detailed exposition on John chapter 3. But let me say this. It's John 3, right? I think it's John 3. It might be 4. I don't know. Uh, I didn't write it down. But let me say this. It's something that happens in your life that you can look back at and say, He already did this to me. So I know that when He says He's going to do this other stuff to me in the future, I can have a confident hope in that. Right? I've experienced what it means to be born again. And so when He says, eventually, you're going to be what's called glorified. You're going to get a new body and your sin is going to be removed. Like, is he really going to do that? We can look back at being born again and go, Well, he did that. So I'm pretty sure he's going to do that one too. Right? Because it's something I've actually experienced. Third idea our hope is grounded in the resurrection. I don't have a slide for this, but let me read this to you from 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Right? Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ. Uh, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of a people most to be pitied. Basically, that whole chapter in First Corinthians 15 talks about this. Look, if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, we have no reason to be doing any of this and we're all screwed. But if he did raise from the dead, then we have a hope like nobody else. And so what this means is that our hope is grounded in the resurrection, an actual historical event, something that really happened. Right? I was listening to the song, because the next song we're about to sing, I don't know it very well. And I'm very worried that I'm going to screw it up pretty good, you know. And uh, one of the lines in the song says, Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Um, I was listening to that this morning on the way driving here. As I, was, or I was getting in my car, I had my headphones on, and I was listening to this. And I felt the cold air. From walking out my front door. Like the cold, you know, that crisp morning air. Kayla doesn't know about that. Um, <laughs> it's the crisp morning air. And right as I stepped outside, that line came on the song, right? The morning. And I was like, man, it was like a real morning. Like with real people, just like this one. It was like a real historical event. And thousands of years later, we really we have good reasons to believe it. We're not going to get into the whole, is the resurrection true? Come back in January when we do the resurrection from Luke, and we're going to get into all of that stuff. But because this was a real event, man, that means we have our hope grounded in that. But also, it means, the it means our hope is personal. So Buddhism, the idea of your soul going into the ocean of the all-soul, right, like getting lost into the consciousness of everything... Um, I mean, if I'm being honest, that does not sound like something I want to do. Here, the good news is you can never be you again. Well, that kind of sucks. I like being me. I'm pretty great. You know, just kidding. <laughs> but it, it means the love relationships you've had and built will continue, right? You're still you. You're going to get an actual physical body just like Jesus. You're going to be raised into this new hope. And here's the kicker, right? All these other afterlifes out there, they're all sort of ethereal they're all different from the world now but the Christian worldview says no 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 the afterlife is the better version of what we have here it's the restored version the new heavens and the new earth I'm going to read this quote from you there's a uh, this is why one Christian preacher from uh, Sri Lanka when asked do you think that salvation comes through other faiths too he answered what salvation are you talking about not this one No other religion even claims to hold out a hope for salvation of this world along with our souls and our bodies, right? That's what's going to happen. And so this hope is actually something to look forward to. It's something that we can, you know, we've got a small, we know what food tastes like. We know what the ground feels like. You know, we know what hot and cold is. That's what the world to come is going to be, and you're going to have an actual body. And so we can have hope looking forward to that. Um, Keller puts it like this, you won't simply get your life back, but you will get the life you've always longed for, but never were able to achieve because of the resurrection, right? That's what's going to happen. The fourth idea, real quick, our hope is grounded in the idea that God is preserving our inheritance for us. It would be horrible news for God to say, okay, you're saved by grace. Now hold on to it. You know, I had a, there's a guy, he said once, a pastor guy, I think it was like If I could lose my salvation, I would. (laughs) You know, if holding on to this was up to me, I would lose it. Right? Here's what this says, though: is our hope is what does it say here exactly? Um, Through the resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Right? Our inheritance is in heaven in a safety deposit box, and the Father is the one guarding it. He's the security guard at the bank, and he's holding on to it for us. And so you're going to live your life, and you're going to struggle with sin and doubt. You're going to try really hard to live a holy life, and you're not going to live up to it. You're going to, you're going to fail even at your own goals. It's comforting to know that your inheritance isn't dependent, again, on how you live up. It's dependent on whether or not God can hold on to it for you. And what God says is, yeah, I can. I've got this. Don't worry about it. I'll hold on to this until you get here. Right, look at these words. In verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. One pastor, Dick Lucas, who's one of my favorite preachers of all time. He was this British guy back in the day. um, He says this, looking at these words. He says, this means your inheritance is death-proof. That's imperishable. It's sin-proof, undefiled. And it's time-proof, unfading. So uh, death, sin, and time, none of those (laughs) things are going to take your inheritance away from you. And the fifth idea, I'm not going to go into this a lot, but our hope is grounded in the idea that God protects his people even while we're here on earth spiritually, right? So that's at the end. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? So if you look at that fourth way that our hope is grounded... God promises He's gonna hold your salvation for you, you'd think, great, now I can just skate through life and I don't have to worry about it, and I'll just sit back and do whatever I want, and then God will hold my salvation. There's a tension, there's always a tension in the Bible. God will hold on to your salvation, and at the same time, you earn you get yourself not earn, you get your salvation through a life of faith. Right? There's this sort of tension. And so God promises that if you really are one of his, And if he's holding on to your salvation, he's going to strengthen you even through the hard times. Remember, this letter is being written to people who are being tortured and killed for their faith. God says, Peter says, God is strengthening you through even that stuff. And so look at this kind of hope and we look at this kind of grounding, right? Look at these two, like the hope and grounding that we have. Now, imagine a group of people who truly Desperately have this kind of confident hope. Imagine a church that really lived into this hope, that really believed it, that woke up every day and said, Man, I can't wait for the resurrection. I can't wait to get my new body. I can't wait for eternity. I can't wait for this sin to be. Do you think that that kind of a group of those kind of people is going to just look like the rest of the world? No. That's our third idea. Our hope is visible. Okay, our hope is um, something that people can see. Look at this. From jump forward two chapters there to 1 Peter three. Our hope is, um, but in, let me read this. But in your hearts honor Christ as Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if you've ever seen this verse before, I would slap bet you that it was in the context of apologetics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've seen this. Okay, you need to be ready to give a defense for your faith. Here's the problem with that, though. I mean, that's great, and we should be ready to do that, and we're, you know, quick pitch for the class coming up on, you know, we're going to read this book here. But here's the thing. What does the verse actually say? It doesn't say you need to be prepared to defend your faith. Why should you be able to give a defense? To explain the hope that is in you. That's weird, right? Do you see what he's saying? Is that you're going to live with hope as a follower of Jesus with such passion and such joy and confidence that the people around you are going to look at you and go, what the heck? What's with this guy? And they're going to come up to you, and they're going to say, what's with you? And that's when you go, oh, let me tell you about this. Do you see that? This verse is not about be prepared to give a defense. Learn all the arguments so that you can go argue with people who don't want to argue with you. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that you live your life in such a way with such confident hope that the people around you notice, right? The the hope of a Christian is something that people can see. Like One of my favorite authors is um, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, right? I think Francis Chan one time said she's like the most godly person he ever met. And I was like, I bet that's probably true. Um, she's an amazing woman. She was in a diving accident when she was younger, college maybe, somewhere in there. And she broke her neck. And she's a quadriplegic. And, uh, man, she she writes about hope and she writes about stuff. But she, just she lives her life in a way that people go, something's, something's wrong with this lady. <laughs> right? Nobody is happy When they're a quadriplegic, you know? And she's very honest about her struggles and her, her, um, her, like, suicidal thoughts at certain times, and, you know, as she's had different pain and surgeries over the years. And she's just an amazing woman, but she's the kind of person I think if you spent any time with, you go, boy, something's different about her, right? I've met people like this in my own life, like my buddy who is actually sadly in the hospital right now, the guy who shared faith with me, Bill. Um, he's like an older he was a hippie in the 60s living in a commune um, on hate street became a believer and i've know, you know started working at our church my old church and anyway i've known this guy for a long time but he's just one of those guys he walks around and you're just like man something's different about this guy right he, he's just always thinking about eternity and you can tell now at our church we do we talk about pabst blue ribbon a lot you know the beer Right. So I think most of you guys know this. But basically, this is our outreach. What is it? What do we call it? We need a name for it. Framework. framework. Our outreach framework. There you go. That's why, that's why I keep you around. Uh, this framework. Pray for people. Ask them about their lives. Bless them in ways nobody else would. Share your personal story with them. Talk to them about the gospel. Paps Blue Ribbon, right? Um, there's no step in the Paps Blue Ribbon for living your hope in front of people. Um, that's because Pabst, low hip-hop, uh, doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way. I wrote it down there. Pabst, living your hope in front of people. Um, but within our Pabst framework, that's funny, I wrote framework right there. Within our Pabst framework is the big idea that you're just, you're living life with the people around you, right? sort of implied, uh, you pray for people because you have hope in eternity and you want them to be there as well. You want them to join you. You ask them about their lives and you ask them questions like, what, uh, what gives you hope? How's it going? Right? Do you ever feel hopeless? People will, talk, people will talk about that. You bless them in ways nobody else would. And when you do that, they ask you, why did you do that? Well, let me tell you about my, and that moves you into the next one, right? Let me tell you about my system of values. Let me tell you about where I get hope. Because my hope is not in this world, I'm free to give away things to you. Because I know what's ultimately important to me is eternity. So you share. And you say, look, this is what happened to me. I was a wretched sinner and all this. And, you know, the Lord uh, saved me. And this is how it happened, whatever is your story. And then you say, and this is what, now this is what I believe about the world. And this is what, you know, this is the, let me tell you about where I think I'm headed. And I have a confident hope. I don't have the wishful, boy, I hope I win the lottery hope. I'm holding the ticket. Right? and I, I know where I'm headed. And so you talk about the gospel and you have this hope. And so those are the, our three ideas, right? To sum up, the Christian worldview offers a unique hope that can't be found in any other religion or secular materialism. The hope, this hope has a solid grounding. This hope is visible to outsiders. And so as we enter the Advent season, right, this is the kickoff for Advent and the Christmas season. As we enter this time, I want you to think about two things. First, how can I take time to grow hope in my life? Hope is something that can grow. Right? How can I look to Jesus more this season than I normally do? That's the first thing. For you personally, I want you to leave this Christmas season with a better grasp of where you're headed and a better feel for the idea that you're heading into eternity than you did at the beginning of this Christmas season. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to look for chances to share this hope with the people around you. Um, Keller wrote a book, too. I talk about Keller a lot. I know. Shut up. Uh, he wrote a book. I don't remember what it's called. Something Christmas. A Christmas book. Hidden Christmas might be it. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Um, and I'm pretty sure this comes from that book. But basically, he says, it's really weird that all year long, everybody's like, boy, these Christians are all a bunch of morons. I can't believe they believe this stuff, you know, and then Christmas comes around. Joy to the world, you know, they're singing our songs, and he's like, it's kind of this weird time, it's the easiest time to talk to people about the things of faith, is kind of what he says. I think that's true, because O come, O come, Emmanuel, right, people are singing this like, you know the band we listened to a while ago in church, um, when we were doing our, let's listen to a song and then talk about it, we listened to this band called Bad Religion, Their whole thing is like we hate religion. And like they play songs and they play shows, and the poster behind them on the wall, like the big banner, is like a cross with like the circle and it's crossed out. You know, like this is what the band does. They have a whole Christmas album of all of the Christian songs. (laughs) It's so odd. I don't know. Anyway, it's a great punk band, by the way, even though they hate us. but this is the time when you, you have those opportunities. So I just want you to think about how does your hope shine to the people around you in this time? And then what opportunities is the Lord going to put in front of you? You know, I mean, we just said earlier, this is a great time to invite somebody to the lessons in carols or just, you know, I don't know, take somebody to the Messiah. There's a lot of chances to just talk about who, what we believe and the hope that we have in this season. All right, so I want to end, that's the end. I want to end just with this one quote about hope um, from uh, Paul David Tripp, who again, another one of my favorite authors. I kind of hate him too though because uh, every time he writes something, I'm like, boy, why didn't I think of it that way? And then also, boy, he's a lot better than me. You know, like uh, he, he goes through life really thinking about Jesus like all the time, it seems like. Anyway, he's a very challenging dude. I love his books and I hate them. Uh, So he says this, Paul David Tripp, Hope in the here and now and hope in the great forever that is to come rests on one set of shoulders. It rests on the almighty shoulders of Jesus, who is for you today the way, the truth, and the life. He offers you what you have no power to provide for yourself, restored relationship with God, a knowledge of what is really true, and a life that will never end. How's that for hope? That's what he says. I love that. Right? All right. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you that we, that we have hope in you. We thank you that our hope is not dependent on how well we behave or if we measure up, but that you are holding our inheritance for us in eternity, in heaven now. And that you, just like you, have, we can look at our, <clears throat> our, our new birth, Um, with gratitude, we can also look forward because of that, Lord, to our our coming resurrection with hope and with joy. So this this Christmas season, Lord, we just pray for our friends and our neighbors who don't know you, but who are going to hear, Oh come, Oh come, Emmanuel. They're going to hear joy to the world. They're going to hear all this stuff. And uh, we just pray that you would use those songs this season, that you would use our lives and our hope to reach the folks around us. We love you so much. Amen.